answer it in a really roundabout way. Uh, and, and my goal, I wanna, by doing that, I want to show you, I want to help you to think about your own relationship with God and the foundation on which it rests. All right, so we're going to start in verse 1. Remember that Hosea 1.1 tells us, uh, like the prophets often do, the time during which Hosea prophesied. You can find the story told in uh, 2 Kings 14 through 17. So that's the, the time of all these kings. But let, let's read Hosea 1.1 through 3. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now one of the first messages, perhaps the, the very first message, that Hosea received as a prophet, uh, someone called by God to communicate his message to the people, one of his first things he heard from God was this command to go marry what my translation of the Bible says is a promiscuous woman. Now here's the question of the text. Uh, was Gomer actually promiscuous before their marriage or did she become promiscuous afterward? When did this uh, 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 sin in her life, when did it begin to dominate? Was, uh, when did that promiscuity begin? Now, um, I spent a lot of hours thinking and reading about this on Wednesday, was pondering this. I read pages and pages how to explain the issue. Then on Wednesday night at prayer meeting, I asked the, the people at prayer meeting to pray for our service on Sunday. We always pray for the preaching in our church. It's one of the things that we do. And um, uh, the, 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 at prayer meeting, I was asked two questions. The first question, I, I shared with them this issue in Hosea. When was, Hosea's, when was Gomer's promiscuity? When did it begin? And, and uh, two people asked me questions about that. The questions were, why does it matter? And doesn't the text actually just answer that question for you? <laughs> all of my angst disappeared when they asked me that question. Not all of my uh, angst. Actually, there's, there's eight views on Hosea's marriage. Eight major views. We're only going to spend time on a couple of them this morning. Some people really struggle with this idea that God would command Hosea to marry a promiscuous woman. That from the beginning he would issue this command. And so they feel very strongly that Hosea married a woman who would be unfaithful. That's one of the major views here. That Gomer was not a promiscuous woman when he married her, but that in time he would become, she would become a promiscuous woman. Now, let's talk about this a little bit. The text literally says, the text literally says, uh, go and marry a, a woman of harlotry, or the ESV translates it, a woman of whoredom. Maybe your translation says, a woman of unfaithfulness. Now, my translation takes that noun, whoredom, harlotry, unfaithfulness, and makes it an adjective describing Gomer as a promiscuous adjective woman. And the issue is, does that noun, whoredom, harlotry, unfaithfulness, does it describe her character, she's going to be that way someday, or does it describe her actions at the time of her marriage? Would God command one of his prophets to marry a prostitute? 
And how would that affect his ministry? Leviticus 21 is very clear. It says that a priest must not marry a woman defiled by prostitution or divorced from her husband. Because the text says priests are holy to God. And some people say, why wouldn't that apply to a prophet too? How if God is commanding a priest not to marry a, uh, a prostitute, how could God command a prophet to marry a prostitute? Now, the text, Leviticus 21, does not say anything about prophets, just priests, but still, the question remains, would God do that? Earlier this week, I read Proverbs chapter 5 in my uh, regular course of reading through the Bible. And Proverbs, the early chapters of Proverbs, this book that is written to young men, uh, this training manual in particular for young men, has some very severe warnings about consorting with an adulterous woman. That's the text says, the lips of an adulterous woman drip honey, which is very sweet, right? And her speech is smoother than oil. It's luscious. But in the end, she is bitter as gall. may drip honey, but there's bitterness there. She is sharp as a double-edged sword. She's not smooth like oil. She's cutting like a sword. You will regret your relationship with her, Proverbs 5 warns young men. Be careful. You will regret your relationship with an adulterous woman. Now, I know it's a little bit different. Proverbs is talking to a young man who is attracted to perhaps an older, married, adulterous woman. And, and here we have a situation where a prophet is commanded to marry a prostitute. It's not quite the same. But these warnings still remain. I was thinking this uh, about Proverbs chapter 5 as it connects with our pornographic culture. We live in a pornographic culture. Albert Moeller uh, generalizes. He says that he thinks that typically men are tempted to view pornography while women are tempted to commit pornography. And what he means by that is use their bodies to gain power, wealth, um, attention from anyone who will give in exchange. Proverbs says, you are a fool if you commit adultery. And it, it warns against unfaithful women, whether they're in the flesh or on film. Proverbs says, at the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. You will say, how I hated discipline, how I, my heart spurned correction. You are a fool, young man, the text says, for engaging in that sort of behavior. Now, with that warning that's given in the background of Proverbs chapter 5, how is it, some wonder, how is it that Hosea, that God could command Hosea to go marry someone of, of that character? I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but you, uh, I, I probably won't refer to it again, but there's, there's a line of thought, actually, in um, the, the studies of the book of Hosea, the feminist interpretation of Hosea, condemns the book of Hosea for being for its great misogyny, for how it's so women-hating because Hosea, uh, Gomer is the woman and she's the guilty one. And this is just pro proof that the Bible is uh, misogynistic. Well, you could have that opinion, I suppose, of the Bible if you don't read the book of Judges or Genesis or Jeremiah or most of the Gospels. This is a very even-handed. The Bible is very even-handed. It doesn't have any tolerance for men and women, men or women who trade in seduction. But in light of these warnings about the foolishness of consorting with 
uh, unfaithful women, again, how can Hosea, how can God make this command of Hosea? So to solve that problem, again, some people suggest that God had commanded Hosea to marry a woman who would become faithful someday. But that raises a very obvious question. My daughter, Claire, pointed this out to me. How would Hosea know what sort of woman would be unfaithful to him? Unless God had given Hosea the name ahead of time, how would he know that Gomer was going to be unfaithful to him someday? How How would he know that? Now, a second view of this text is that God commanded Hosea to marry an actual prostitute, a woman who was already engaged in prostitution, perhaps a temple prostitute. That would not be uncommon. In these days, though they were God's people, the Israelites worshipped the false god Baal, sometimes pronounced probably more accurately Baal. And Baal worship was very sexually perverse. In fact, at a Baal temple, there would be temple prostitutes and you would go and pay your homage to Baal and then you would consort with a prostitute. It would not be hard to find a temple prostitute. Verse 2 says, Go marry a woman of whoredom and children of whoredom, the text literally says. One commentator suggests that Gomer actually already has children, Uh, from her uh, work as a prostitute. Later she's going to have more children. Those more children are a very important part of the book of Hosea. But this is the the type of situation that at God's command, Hosea is supposed to enter. Now which view is correct? Either way, God was commanding his prophet to enter a life of pain. Right? Either way... Either way, God is commanding Hosea to either marry a woman who already has this life or who is going to someday. It's going to hurt. It's interesting, the text, there's no response at all of Hosea except obedience. Do you remember when God called Moses to be a prophet? Moses. The book of Exodus. Go and set my people free. And, And there's like two and a half chapters of excuses on Moses' part. I can't speak very well, Uh, I'm afraid, they won't follow me, don't send me, can't you send somebody else? There's none of that. I don't know if those thoughts went through Hosea's mind or if he raised any objections. There's no no record of that at all. This call is to not just some sort of formal legal marriage either. Uh, God is commanding Hosea to go and love her. Uh, That's actually... In chapter 3, where he says, go and love her again. Hmm. Now, if you spend time with the prophets, you should understand that God often calls the prophets in the Old Testament to act out their messages. In Isaiah chapter 20, it tells us that the prophet Isaiah walked around in his underwear for three years to prophesy, to demonstrate how poverty was going to come upon the people. The text actually says he walked around naked, but he was in his underwear. That's in the Hebrew. <laughs> BVD is pronounced, no, it's not, but it's, um, in Ezekiel 4 and 5, oh, strange what God asked Ezekiel to do. Ezekiel had to build a clay model of Jerusalem and lay down next to it on the ground for almost a year. At a certain points in time, or over a year, actually, at certain points in time, God commanded him to cut his hair and burn half and let half it fly in the wind. He had to cook his food next to his clay model of Jerusalem, and he had to use cow dung as fuel to cook his food. That was the command. I'm just a stunk, right? 
That was the command. This is what Ezekiel did. Later in the book of Ezekiel chapter uh, 24, God told Ezekiel that his wife was going to die and God forbid him from mourning for her. In Jeremiah 16, the prophet Jeremiah is commanded not to marry as a symbol of the, the, the poor times that will come during judgment. God's prophets are used to acting out their messages. It happens quite a bit in the book. But this, this command, Hosea, go marry a woman who's going to break your heart. That's a hard, hard command. Can you imagine how much mockery Hosea is inviting into his life? How much abuse he's inviting by going to marry Gomer? Now, so which view is correct? Was Gomer a prostitute when he married her, or did she become unfaithful later? I want to answer that question in in a a roundabout way. I want to answer it, and I think it's worth answering based on what happens or what God says at the end of verse 2. Look what it says. For like an adulterous wife, this land, these people, the Israelites, are guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Hosea and his wife are going to be a living picture of God's relationship with Israel. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to step back for a minute, and I want to think with you about marriage itself and why it serves as a suitable parable of God's relationship with Israel. Then we're going to come back to this question here of Hosea and Gomer, and we're going to talk about your relationship with God. So what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 is where I want to direct your attention. We turn to this passage all the time. Um, it's, uh, uh, it's so foundational. Ray Ortland, in a, a book he wrote about spiritual adultery, which is, by the way, that little book about spiritual adultery that Ray Ortland read, wrote, Scott and I read it a couple of years ago. That's why we're studying the book of Hosea. But Anyway, he says that the early chapters of Genesis are foundational because God's people received them. The Israelites, they had just come out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, They were a new people, a new nation with a new leader and a new relationship with God. And Moses told God, God told Moses to write down the book of Genesis to orient the people to who they are and where they had come from and what their life was supposed to be like. It's kind of like... um, they, they came out of the promised land kind of like a college student. You drop them off at the curb. There they are, their freshman year. They're standing on the curb, and they wave goodbye to mom and dad, and here they are, new place, new challenges, nothing familiar. Those are, that's a period of time where college students in particular ask the question, who am I really? Who's really going to be my friend? What am I really going to study? What, what is really going to be important to me? Here I am trying to figure that out. And Genesis is meant to tell the Israelites where they came from and what they should be like and what their life should be like. And so Genesis is a book of roots, and Moses begins with marriage. Not actually marriage, but he starts with male and female. Um, Genesis 1, 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Oh, our confusion, our sexual confusion about culture is a, in our culture is a sin against roots that God planted deeply within us. It's a grievous sign of unraveling. Well, 
God creates Adam. He puts him in the garden. He has a place to live. He has a relationship with God. He has, he has a job to do. He has to be stewards of the world that God had made. Everything seems to be perfect except one thing. He's alone. He needs a companion. You know the story. Look at Genesis 1.18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Then Genesis 2.19 continues. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, uh uh-oh, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, Wow, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Wow, man, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So, verse 24 here summarizes the nature of marriage, and it describes it as an exclusive relationship. Uh, There's three key concepts here in this. I'm sure you know about these, but let me just mention them to review them. Three key concepts. The first is encapsulated in the word, verse 24, leave. That's why a man leaves his father and mother. Marriage is the most intimate of human relationships. It takes precedence over your relationship with your parents. Remember, this is a tribal culture. This is a a very close-knit family structure. You lived with and obeyed your parents your whole life. You lived together. But uh, marriage takes precedence over your relationship with your parents. In our culture, our tendency is not competing loyalties between a husband and wife with parents, but competing loyalties between husband and wife with children. In other words, it's a son, it's a daughter, it's not a mother or father who may be the biggest competitor in marriage for loyalty. Bruce McCracken used to write, uh, teach at Lancaster Bible College. Now he leads a ministry uh, uh, dedicated to marriage. He recently wrote that the second most vulnerable period of time in a couple's relationship, in a marriage, uh, when divorce is most likely to occur, is the second most t- uh, time when divorce is likely to occur is during the early months and years of the empty nest period. Uh, your children are grown and out of the house. Some of you are thinking, you're sitting in the room and you're thinking to yourself, boy, I can't wait for that period of time, right? You're thinking, this is not bad for us, this is awesome, right? You're thinking that. Well, that may be because you understand what the word leave means. Marriage takes intentional investment, and if you let that slide because you're so focused on your children, when they're gone, what are you going to have left? Leave. So marriage the most uh, intimate human relationship. Now, the second word. My, my translation um, uses the word, after leave, we come to is united. The, the more traditional translation might use the word cleave. It's the second concept here. Leave and then cleave, or be united. 
Being united is the, the flip side of leave. Marriage is independence from your parents and connection to your spouse. Leave and be united. There's attachment here. This speaks of attachment. It speaks of contentment, fulfillment, trust, care, mutual trust, mutual care. A husband and wife look to one another for, for happiness and satisfaction and peace. You always take his calls. You always take her calls. You smile when he or she enters the room. You're oriented toward one another. You're united toward each other. Leave, cleave, or be united. And the third phrase here in this passage, verse 24, one flesh, one flesh. Marriage is a relationship of tenderness and love. This word flesh here is interesting, isn't it? See, According to science, by DNA, I am more closely related to my parents, my sisters, and my children than I am my wife because genetically we share DNA. My parents, my sisters, and my children do. I don't share DNA with my wife. But according to the Bible, we are one flesh, closer than blood brothers. Remember here where Eve came from. Eve came from Adam. God tore Adam apart in order to make Eve. And in marriage, they're put back together. And it is uh, that one flesh is symbolized in, of course, sexual union. I don't know how much of, if you uh, watched much of the coverage devoted to Nancy Reagan's funeral, but um, Secretary of State, the former Secretary of State, James Baker, was talking about Ron and Nancy Reagan, and he said, they were closer to being one person than anybody else, I, any other couple I have ever seen. In fact, that was kind of the theme of her funeral was how much she loved and cared for her husband. She's a, she was a woman of honor. He would not have been the person he was if it were not for her care and support and love for him. One flesh. Now the word actually flesh is here to remind us that as intimate as this relationship with is, it is still less than ultimate. It's intimate but not ultimate. Why? Because it's flesh. Sure, they are one flesh, but they are still just flesh. Limited to the created realm. Limited to this life. Just flesh. Here's how Ray Ortland summarizes this. Human marriage is premised in the making of the woman out of the very flesh of the man, the man, so that the blonde, blonde of marriage, no, that's not true, the bond of marriage reunites what was originally and literally one flesh. All other relational claims must yield to the primacy of the marital union. It requires an exclusive, lifelong bonding of one man with one woman in one life fully shared. This is a wonderful sentence. Listen to this. It erects barriers around the man and woman, and it destroys all barriers between the man and the woman. Isn't that a wonderful way to think about marriage? It, it builds fences around that couple and tears apart the fences between them. Wonderful. God so joins them together that they belong fully to one another and to one another only. That's exclusivity. This exclusive bond is a picture of God's relationship with his people. 
God's relationship with his people is an exclusive bond. It's marked by that same love and trust and care. You know, it's easy to see how God uses this in how the rest of the Old Testament talks about spiritual adultery or spiritual infidelity. What, I want to show you several passages where this concept is used. I, I wrote them down for you. Look at Exodus 34. We'll start there. Remember, this is the people are on the, in the valley. God is up on the mountain. He's giving them the law. And listen to what God says. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their Asherah poles. It's a worship issue that God is concerned about. Do not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. There is a type of exclusivity. There is a type of jealousy that makes sense in an exclusive relationship. There should be a healthy jealousy in every marriage. There is a healthy jealousy... God is zealous to protect his relationship with his people. So he gives them these commands. Verse 15, Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land. For when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons, and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same spiritual infidelity. That's God's concern here. Now, Leviticus 20. Look at this, verses 4 through 6. If the members of the community close their eyes when that man sacrifices one of his children to Molech, and if they fail to put him to death, Molech would be one of the Canaanite gods. They're worshiping Molech by burning their children in a fire to him. God says, I myself will set my face against him and his family and will cut them off from their people together with all who follow him. And here's the word, prostituting themselves to Molech. There it is again. I will set my face against anyone who turns to mediums and spiritists to prostitute themselves by following them and I will cut them off from their people. Now notice this, burning your children to Molech is spiritual adultery and turning to fortune tellers, trying to get false revelation from other human beings is spiritual adultery. Deuteronomy 31, 16, the, the image continues. And the Lord said to Moses, you are going to rest with your ancestors and these people will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land they are entering. They will forsake me and break the covenant I made with them. They're going to do it quickly. It's going to happen soon. It, seems, it almost seems like the Israelites are anxious to go after their foreign gods as if they can't wait for it to happen. I read an article, it was a news story, it was a, it was a terrible story, an idiotic story about a groom at a wedding who during his wedding reception was arrested for soliciting a prostitute. What idiocy. She must have known he was like that when she said yes. There's idiocy all around in that story. These people, they just can't wait to go after these foreign gods. They can't wait to prostitute themselves. They can't wait to get these foreign gods and start worshiping them. One last passage, Judges 2, happened many years after Moses. 
The Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders, yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. They loved these gods, it seems like. They worshipped them. This is not a flattering picture of the Israelites, is it at all? None of them should be mocking Hosea. Don't you dare mock Hosea or mock Gomer with your snide comments because you are just like her, the prophet says. They've abandoned their covenant relationship with God. They've prostituted themselves to these foreign gods, foreign gods who abuse and mistreat and neglect them. This is not a flattering picture of the Israelites. It's not a flattering picture of all human beings. Listen to what Ray Ortland says again about this. Spiritual adultery entails more than religious offenses. Whenever God is not trusted fully and obeyed exactly, including in the realm of politics, his people deny the adequacy of his care and protection so that they fend for themselves on their own terms. If this definition is true, If he's right about this, that spiritual adultery is not trusting God fully, not obeying him exactly, fending for yourself on your own terms, is there anyone in this room who is innocent of this sin? Now, let's think about Hosea's marriage again. What condition was Gomer in when when Hosea found her? Maybe we should answer the question by asking what condition Israel was in when God found her. If God's relationship with Israel is like a marriage, what sort of relation, what, what sort of, what condition did God find the Israelites in when he made a covenant with them? Well, huh, Joshua tells us that Abraham, the father of the Israelites, uh, when God called him, was worshiping not the one true God, but the moon. Do you remember the story of the golden calf? God is with Moses up on the mountain and he's getting the law and down below the people are living. What do they do? They make an idol so that they can worship the golden calf. Even when the covenant is being instituted or being given for the first time, the people are down worshiping their idols. Ezekiel 20 tells us that while in Egypt, the Israelites worshiped, uh, Ezekiel 20 says, vile images. There is this persistent pattern in the Bible from the beginning, and it pervades even to the time of the Lord Jesus. It's Palm Sunday. We mark in a special way the day that Jesus rode the donkey into Jerusalem. It was, it was God's declaration. It was God's invitation to the people. Here is Jesus, your king, if you will have him. And within a week, they killed him. And even as Jesus was riding into town, Luke tells us that he was weeping for the city. He's riding into town. As, uh, look, Luke 19. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Matthew recorded a few days later these words, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. Spiritual adultery, remember this, spiritual adultery happens when God's people deny the adequacy of his care and protection so that they fend for themselves on their own terms. From the beginning, the Israelites. 
on through the days of the prophets, even in the point where the Lord Jesus was with them himself. And has, has anything really changed in the creatures that God has made? Now, maybe you can tell which of these two views on Hosea's marriage I hold. <laughs> I think Hosea found his wife and probably her children in a house of prostitutes, and he rescued her. Hosea chapter 1 is a story of a marriage that is covenanted by grace, great grace, just how God found Israel and just like how God finds us, unfaithful adulterous, treacherous. We're terrible candidates. We are terrible candidates for an exclusive covenant with God. One hymn writer said, we are prone to wander. Not just prone to wander, we wander. This is the state of us all. All of we, all we like sheep have gone astray. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Our natural condition is to be dead in trespasses and sins. God proved how much he loved us in that while we were still sinners, without any qualifications, without anything to merit us to God, without any worth in and of ourselves as holy people, Christ died for us. I want to remind you of that because some of you struggle with this mightily. You wonder about your own worthiness Someone says to you, are you a Christian? Do you have eternal life? And, and you say to them, well, I hope so. But your rescue is not dependent on your worthiness. It's dependent on God's great kindness, on God's goodness, his grace. God finds none of his children outside the pigsty. That's where we all were, and he came to rescue us. Hosea had a wife. Her name was Gomer. God has a spiritual wife. Jesus has a bride. And he has done everything for her. God has done everything necessary for you to come to him. His son has come. He offered himself as our substitute before God. He bore God's wrath on the cross and he invites all who believe to come, to turn to him and trust in him. And if you think you are worthy to come, you can't because you're not. God only takes unworthy people who will throw themselves on Jesus. Phil Yancey was once uh, asked to address a conference it was a ministry conference for people, uh, for ministries that are involved, uh, that are trying to rescue women who are caught in prostitution. He's a little anxious about this. His wife encouraged him to go. At the end of the conference session, he did a question and answer session. He did a Q&A with some of the women who actually had been involved in prostitution. Now, the prostitutes he, were dis- he was talking to were not temple prostitutes. It's a little different than Hosea's day. But let me, let me read what he, he wrote at the end. Uh, I, I had time for one more question, he says. He asked these women, did you know that Jesus referred to your profession? Let me read to you what he said. I tell you the truth, he quotes Jesus, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Yancey says, Jesus was speaking to the religious authorities of his day. What do you think Jesus meant? Why did Jesus single out prostitutes? Women, silent. 
Then he said a, a, a young woman from Eastern Europe spoke up in her very broken English. That's what she said. Everyone has someone else to look down on but us. We are at the lowest point. Our families feel shame for us. No mother nowhere looks at her little girl and says, Honey, when you grow up, I want you to be a good prostitute. Most places we are breaking the law. Believe me, we know how people feel about us. People call us names, and then she listed them. We feel it too. We are at the bottom, and sometimes when you are at the low, you cry for help. So when Jesus comes, we respond. Maybe Jesus meant that. I suppose that he did. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we give you great thanks for your grace that has been extended to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this man and his message, this prophet, his obedience to you. It is a shining light tucked away in the pages of the Old Testament that reminds us of your great grace. We were lost, running a hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost of our disobedience against you. But you rescued us through Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning who are struggling with thinking about their own worthiness and Lord I pray that you would remind them of the worthiness of your great son who met every single one of your requirements and we are accepted in him by faith oh that's such good news would you seal that to our minds and our hearts thank you Lord for the gift of marriage and how it points to your great glory Change us that we might better reflect your surpassing love. How great you are. Thank you for your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.